I seek coordinates and context. Uh, when asked to be in the pulpit on November 13, I looked to see where the date was positioned. Uh, that is, if it was an anniversary of something, a holiday, religious or otherwise, uh, to give me kind of a jumping in point, something to kickstart my brain. Well, it happens to be two days after Veterans Day, the day set aside to embrace the end of war and to honor those who serve and have served in the military. And it's a bit less than two weeks before Thanksgiving, our country's annual birthday recognition of gratitude. So in my mind's eye, November 13th wasn't too shabby a date because there were a couple of things to, to work with. I um, was going to um, recognize those that have served and serve in the military, and I would ask y'all to rise again, the veterans, and that we could give them, we could thank them again for their service. Thank you. So, I have somewhere to start. In honor of Veterans Day, I chose the reading, The Young Dead Soldiers, because from the first time I read it, it resonated with me. It summons me. There's something about it, particularly the lines, our deaths are not ours, they are yours. They will mean what you make them. Whether our deaths were for peace and a new hope or for nothing, we cannot say. It is you who must say this. We leave you our deaths. Give them their meaning. So, the context here has to do with choices we make that give meaning to our lives. Choices, meaning, gratitude emerged as coordinates for me, our guidepost for each of our lives and for the life of a congregation. Uh, Barbara asked what my sermon was going to be about. And when I told her the topic, she said, well, you know, that covers a, a lot of uh, territory. You know, this is supposed to be done in 12 to 15 minutes. I said, seriously, I thought it was a two-hour PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> a little. I know it's not. Anyway, I know that's a little Unitarian humor. Um, we are not a chosen people. We are people who choose. We don't have a creed. And this is one, not an oversight, two, not because we're lazy, or three, oops, oh, it's, uh, it's that our faith draws from many sources, including the first source, which is the direct experience of transcending mystery and wonder, which renews the spirit. Unitarian Universalists were born to be heretics, the word comes from the Greek, and it means choice. We hold the freedom to choose as core to who we are as a denomination. After all, our fourth principle affirms and promotes 
a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. The choices I make affect the way I live and the quality of my life. And that's not to forget that the choices we make as a congregation impact the quality, relevance, heart, and soul of all souls. Choice is always complicated. We would like certainty. We'd like a guarantee. We'd like to know this is right or this is wrong. There's a little fundamentalist in each of us who wants to know that it's either A or B, yes or no. But this trivializes us. And who has time for banality, for superficiality, for pettiness, rote certainty? Religion is not algebra. It's not engineering. As Clara Barton, who was Unitarian and the founder of the Red Cross, said, I cannot afford the luxury of a closed mind. So, we'd like some flippant answers, but we get questions, and we are encouraged to live the questions and to make choices as though our lives depend on it, because they do. The concept of awakening or coming to consciousness is implicit in the first source, the direct experience that moves us. It requires that we open our eyes to everything. And by looking in a certain way, everything is holy. And in so doing, we gradually formulate our religion. I am as I choose. I am what I chose. After years of doing therapy, I've learned one or two things, maybe. One is, anyway, that no one can move forward psychologically, and I think the same can be said that no one can develop spiritual maturity or integrity until we can say, I am more than what has happened to me. I am what I choose to become. Unitarian Universalism is a demanding religious tradition. There are no cheap chips, no cheap beliefs. We earn our religious stripes. To a person, to become a person of value rather than a sycophant, choices must be grappled with. Being right, pleasing others, or not incurring disapproval can't be at the top of the agenda. We are not fated to be stuck in a life of no consequence. Paul Tillich, an eminent theologian, held that we're religious not because of a set of particular beliefs, rather by the character of our questions. The term religion comes from Latin, and it means, or the way it's said is uh, religare, I think. And it means to bind back or to reconnect. And let me tell you, as I was preparing for this talk, reading, reflecting, listening, the concept of connection 
and by deduction reconnection show up shows up time and time again because the deal is connection is why we're here it gives purpose and meaning to our lives connection provides depth heart faith it's what allows the spirit to grow and to thrive now Marilyn Sewell a UU minister emeritus has called us out challenging us saying that Unitarian Universalism has become a religious movement that no longer takes religion seriously. I think another way of thinking about that is a movement that doesn't take spiritual connection seriously. So, connect we must. And to do this, we cannot avert our eyes or look for packaged goods, packaged meaning. Somehow, connection involves becoming more vulnerable, leaning into life, questioning, challenging, being awake. It involves making and finding meaning. The goal of connection is not necessarily happiness. Rather, its goal is meaning. In the act of finding, ascribing, making, or giving meaning, we become part of something bigger. By doing this, we can transcend the petty, the broken. We can transcend suffering. I believe each person in here today has had their heart broken many, many times by losses, by defeats. It is the possibility of meaning that transcends this and allows the soul to heal. I had remembered um, a few years ago watching a movie that I'm sure many of you have seen, and it was a Castaway. And so there was, there was a part of it that, that struck me then, and I, I went back to find the, the quote. And this is, um, I think, about choices, about making meaning. And this is uh, Tom Hanks, who plays Chuck Nolan, and this is when he has come back after being lost at sea and on the island. And he, uh, before he left, he had been, um, he uh, was engaged to this woman, and when he comes back, he has found that she has married somebody else. Her name is Kelly. And he says, We had both done the math. Kelly added it up and knew she had to let me go. I added it up and knew that I had lost her. Because I was never going to get off that island. I was going to die there totally alone. I was going to get sick or injured or something. The only choice I had, the only thing I could control, was when and how and where it was going to happen. So I made a rope and went up to the summit to hang myself. I had to test it, you know. You know me. And the weight of the log snapped the limb of the tree, and so I... I couldn't even kill myself the way I wanted to. I had power over nothing. And that's when this feeling came over me like a warm blanket. I knew somehow that I had to stay alive. Somehow I had to keep breathing, even though there was no reason to hope. And all my logic said that I would never see this place again. So that's what I did. I stayed alive. I kept breathing. And one day my logic was proven wrong. 
because the tide came in and gave me a sail. And now here I am. I'm back in Memphis talking to you. I have ice in my glass. And I've lost her all over again. I'm so sad that I don't have Kelly. But I'm so grateful that she was with me on that island. And I know what I have to do now. I got to keep breathing because tomorrow the sun will rise. Who knows what the tide could bring? Probably no one has written more forcefully or poignantly about making meaning than Viktor Frankl, who was an Austrian psychiatrist who was uh, kept in three different concentration camps over a four-year period. From this experience, he wrote Man's Search for Meaning. And Frankl earned every right to say what he did, which is, in the worst of circumstances, the individual has choice of action. He can preserve a vestige of spiritual freedom. Everything can be taken from you but one thing, the last of human freedoms, that is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, regardless of external forces. The sort of person one becomes is the result of an inner decision. If there's meaning in life at all, there must be a meaning to suffering, because suffering is an inevitable part of life, and it's one stance towards suffering in the end that makes that determination. You know, when you see this in action, it's both humbling and inspiring. I see a woman about age 50 whose body has been ravaged over the past year by ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. She's lost her ability to move her first her legs, then her arms, her fingers, moving from a walker to a wheelchair to bed. She told me, and it's something to watch us talk, because I have to get within just a few inches of her head, because with my bad hearing and her difficulty with speech, and let me say that she's lost some difficulty, she has difficulty with speech, but she has not lost her voice. It is a sight, though. And she said, a few weeks ago, she said, you know, my, my get over it organ gets stretched. And I said, excuse me. And she said, oh, you know, that part of you that has to get over things, has to get on with things. And she said, you know, by the time I get over one thing, then something else happens. Two or three weeks ago, she told me, she said, I pray for grace every day. <clears throat> Most days I feel it. My life is blessed. The world is large. And one good thing from this is I don't have to run errands anymore, and I hated running errands. <laughs> a sense of grace can light up a room, <clears throat> and it truly, one can turn suffering into an inner triumph. 
Her decisions regarding her life, her will and ways to maintain it, feeding tubes, ventilators, I think are all about providing a family for her husband and son. I think at a basic level, this makes her continuing to live make sense to her. I've learned a number of things from this, but one of the things I have learned is we can live without happiness, but not without meaning. And kind of the zen of it is that suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment one finds meaning, because with this, one's attitude about suffering changes. Now, I don't know why I had this thing about Tom Hanks, but then there was another movie he was in, and this one was Saving Private Ryan, which I'm sure some of you did see. And this was, he's talking to a, he's, he plays Captain Miller, and he's talking to um, a sergeant as they are, uh, seven or eight men are going to find and rescue Private Ryan. And he says this, you see, when you end up killing one of your men, you tell yourself it happened so that you could save the lives of two or three or ten others, maybe a hundred others. Do you know how many men I've lost under my command? Sergeant, how many? Ninety-four. But that means I've saved the lives of ten times that many, doesn't it? Maybe even twenty, right? Twenty times that many? And that's how simple it is. That's how you that's how you rationalize making the choice between the mission and the man. Frankel quoted two or three different times in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, Nietzsche's comment that he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. Frankel noted that in the camps, the inmates could be saints or they could be swine, that humans have the potential for both. He realized it didn't matter really what we expect from life, but rather what life expects from us, and that our response needs to be right action and right conduct. He also came to know that no one could relieve another of the burden of suffering, but each had a unique opportunity in how he bore his burden. So, the freedom to choose then, now, always, is not the last word. It's just part of the story because it must be balanced with responsibility. And now, to gratitude. Now, I don't think of myself as being a Pollyanna. I don't think. But this appears to be an attitude necessary for a meaningful life, a life of value. It's necessary for a life that steps beyond fear and external conditions to grow as large as the journey requires. 
I said earlier that I learned one or two things in my uh, 35 or 36 years of doing therapy, and so I've told you the first one, and now I'm going to tell you the second one. And the second one is that about change, and that is to change, you have to do one of two things. You either change what you do or you change how you view it. So to cultivate gratitude, we do have to practice it, and we have to look for its presence. The Thanksgiving tradition, as we know, it was created in probably the worst year of American history, 1863. The Civil War had raged on. There were tens of thousands of casualties. Lincoln called for this. He said he wanted to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November as a day of thanksgiving to commend to God's tender care all who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers. So thanksgiving seems to come, or we seem to appreciate it more, in times of deprivation. I think sometimes in good times we forget what we're thankful for. It's important that we don't lose sight of what we have. It's not let the good times roll. It's rather the spiritual discipline of thanksgiving is not to ignore suffering. Rather, it's to acknowledge it, work to alleviate it, while still giving thanks. So how do we go about cultivating gratitude? I think a couple of things anyway. And that is practicing compassion and imagination. Compassion, from the Latin, the word means there, to share the, the suffering of others. Imagination is that ability we have to image or re-image or have a vision that we're not limited to what we see or taste or feel in right now, but we have, it can embrace the whole world. It's the way that we keep hope alive. I don't think we have to look too far, like just turn on the TV today even, to realize how we have an abysmal failure of imagination and compassion. Because I think that the polarization we see politically, religiously, in all ways, comes from the shriek of unaddressed fear and the whimper of a stunted imagination. There's power and intentionality, that is when I put my energy towards something, if I, intend to, if I intend to be grateful, then my energy will follow that intention. It is true that sometimes we find what we're looking for. So our souls long for transcendence, for meaning, for connection. We've not been brought here unequipped. We are not consigned to small dreams and shallow lives. There are coordinates, choice, meaning, gratitude, so we can grapple with our choices. We can make and create meaning. We can bless our lives just as we find them. We can celebrate gratitude's birthday this coming Thanksgiving Day and all the days before and all the days after it.
Hope is no accident. It's not fate. It is a choice. We can be grateful for all these questions that trouble us into growth because we can come and we can become and to take the line from uh, in the back of the hymnal there's a, a reading called I Call That Church Free and it's we can become a church that bursts through rigid tradition giving rise to new and living language a pilgrim church on an adventure of the spirit now I could have talked all day but I didn't 